Today on Ag News Daily. A path to citizenship for so many of our farm workers is so overdue. And I think regardless of the side of the aisle that you're on, a lot of people can see that. But there's been political restraints and problems that have prevented that from happening. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, we are getting through the hump of the week here. I know. I'm very excited that we are getting over the hump of the week. I had a few things to look forward to this week, and one of them being an orientation that I had to go to today for my master's program, although I thought it was a little strange because I'm already halfway done with my master's program. So honestly, didn't learn too much from that this morning. No, I, I imagine probably not. But let's see. I am looking forward to my brother and sister-in-law. They're coming to visit us on Friday. See my niece and nephew. We're going to go to Adventureland, which is an amusement park here in Des Moines on Saturday. And then I may or may not go to the Iowa State Fair this weekend. It feels weird, Ash. And this is the first year in quite some time I haven't had to go to the State Fair for any reason. Well, Delaney, Dawson and I were talking the other day and he's going to the state fair and I told him that he might have to have a couple of Long Islands. I know I every time we talk about the Iowa State Fair, I bring them up, but I'm just fascinated by how many people that I know that go to the Iowa State Fair tell me about these Long Islands. So I really just bring it up any chance I get, I guess. Uh, I'm trying to think if I've ever had one at the state fair. I don't honestly think I have. Interesting. Well, I have some friends that are are from Iowa that always talk about them. So maybe you'll have to try one one of these days, but just one. (laughs) Just yeah, they're strong. So I imagine one is all I could uh, afford to drink. I actually enjoy a Long Island, but I'm right there with you. I can only have about one of them before I have to go lay down and take a nap. Yeah, Mm -hmm. me too. Me too. Well, Delaney, I have some good news for you. And well, maybe not so much good news if you're planning on going to the state fair, but it looks like some parts of Iowa and Illinois might be getting some rain here in the near future, perhaps over the weekend. Yes, I saw that as well, Ashton. I actually just chatted with Eric Snodgrass yesterday afternoon, and we've got quite a few weather patterns that are changing and hopefully going to be getting better for folks, including cooler temperatures. Well, Delaney, I was telling you earlier this week that the weather down here in Lubbock was a bit rainy. And honestly, this morning I woke up, I didn't see any rain on the ground, but we were overcast. And so with it being overcast, of course, we had some cooler temperatures. So it's been pretty nice. I'm not going to lie. That does sound nice. And like you said there, we're going to get those cooler temperatures for a lot of parts of the Corn Belt, which is much needed. But um, this was also interesting, Ashton. Eric and I were looking at or chatting about temperatures, precipitation, et cetera. And we talked a little bit about South America because they are potentially setting themselves up here for a little bit of a problem. Once again, here heading into 2021 soybean plantings, which usually started on the 15th of September. So Eric and I were talking a little bit yesterday that, you know, we've talked a lot about Brazil having a drought in a big portion of the country. And Eric said that right now the models are indicating that that's probably going to continue, which would tighten up supplies pretty drastically still, Ashton. And I think that uh, also couples nicely with just talking a little bit here about the Midwest crop tour, because we got second day reports out here for Nebraska and South, wait, Nebraska and 
what other day? Oh, Indiana. Sorry, I, I drew a blank there. But we got yield averages out for Nebraska yesterday at a 182.4, up 4% from last year. Indiana corn yields came in at a 193.5, up about 7.5% compared to last year. So we're continuing to see some mixed reports, which I think puts into question whether or not last week's WASI report was too drastic of a yield cut. However, we really can't afford to have any sort of supply issues here in the United States or domestic or internationally. So we're going to have to honestly keep a very close eye on South America production as we head into their planting season here and also keep an eye on those continued reports coming out from the pro farmer crop tour, Ashton, because honestly, I've read some commentary that I'm I'm not I am not Delaney is not saying this but I have read some commentary and analysis that's suggesting if we do see continued any sort of continued hiccup here in the United States or even worldwide we're going to see 2012 level prices so we're going to see some increased uh increased excitement there in the commodity markets if we see all that follow through well, Delaney, I know that you and I talked a little bit about some water news coming out of Iowa and how we typically don't pay attention to mainstream news unless it really impacts agriculture. But I have a story about water, but this time I re- think that it's really going to affect the world of agriculture, particularly in Arizona. Federal officials announced this week that they are making mandatory water cuts to the Colorado River. These are the first federal water cuts, and it's the first ever water shortage for a river that serves 40 million people. Arizona is said to be getting the hardest punch when it comes to these restrictions, losing 18% of its share from the river next year. And that accounts for nearly 8% of the state's total water usage. Farmers in central Arizona, who are among the state's largest producers of livestock, dairy, alfalfa, wheat, and barley, are going to bear the brunt of the cuts. And these cuts come after a two-year projection for Lake Mead that show the water level dropping below critical thresholds due to extreme drought. And we talked about that earlier this summer, Delaney, about Lake Mead drought conditions, those kinds of things, particular to Arizona. And the August predictions help determine what next year's operating conditions will be like for aerial waterways. And the report predicts declines in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, and that the entire Colorado River system shortage is at 40% of its capacity. So I'm not so sure that the outlook is going to be so great for those farmers in central Arizona who are already being hit hard from drought. So this really isn't um, a good thing to hear today. No, but I think we're going to continue to see drought issues when it comes to a large portion of the United States. And I saw, I think this was on Twitter, but uh, actually, you know what? I think Matthew Pott maybe had shared this on Twitter and he, we've had, haven't had him on in a long time. So maybe we need to get him back on, but it's actually a really cool chart showing basically from 2000 till 2021, all of the drought monitors that we've seen up until this point. And it's very interesting to look at, Asha, maybe we should share it on our social media too. Um, It's very interesting to look at basically how year in and year out we've compared drought wise. And 2021 has been pretty drastic. Uh, His graphic here only goes to the end of April. So I don't 
we need to see some updates in there. Um, but it's really cool to just compare this year's drought compared to maybe some past years. You know, 2012, we saw it more focused in the Midwest. This year, of course, we're seeing it more focused in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but all in all, there's been some pretty bad years. And this one definitely, I would say, is towards the top of the list as far as worst drought years in general. Uh, so, of course, that impacts things like you're saying there with like mean, it's impacting crops and a lot of different variables that are going into this year's weather story. You know, Delaney, I, I think the only time I really remember significant drought, at least in, in my area of the U.S., was probably when I was in middle school, which was about 10 years ago. And one of our, our lakes back home, it just grew up like that. And I don't know if you could hear me, but I just snapped for all, all those at home who are listening, but I just snapped. But, uh, I, you know, it, it breaks my heart whenever drought happens, because of course it impacts not only our farmers and ranchers, but it, you know, trickles down to our food system and, and our waterways. So definitely an unfortunate situation that we're seeing. Yeah, it certainly is, Ashton, certainly is. But Thankfully, we've got some good news. We saw another export sale today coming to us from China. And we're talking specifically here, a soybean export of 131,000 tons for delivery in next year's marketing year. So haven't seen that actually shipped yet. But we've seen up until August 5th, China's contracted to buy roughly 4.7 million tons of new crop soybean for delivery in the 21-2022 marketing year. Today's announcement of export sales, I think, pegs us pretty closely to about 2 million metric tons that we've seen contracted since August 5th. So that certainly is giving the markets some stability here as we continue to talk about weather and whether or not the weather market is kind of fizzled out here. Well, Delaney, I know that the next farm bill isn't due until 2023, and it seems pretty far away, but soon we're probably going to be discussing the bill and what's included in that. And about two weeks ago, the main topic of discussion at the Ag Policy Panel at Farm Fest in Redwood Falls, Minnesota, was the farm bill. This panel included Congresswoman Michelle Fishbach, Congressman Tom Emmer, Bill Norby, who is the former USDA Undersecretary of Ag, and Zippy Duval, who is, of course, the American Farm Bureau president, and some other industry professionals. Fishbach said that they have not begun formal discussions on the farm bill, but she expects talks to occur in earnest once the summer recess is over. Meanwhile, Emmer said that as they look at policies in general, he hopes to continue to advocate on behalf of deregulating the burden of agriculturalists. He said that when you talk about regulation, it's not just WOTUS, but it's regulations on biofuels, processing caps on hogs, and we have some interesting regulation policy when it comes to taxes. And pretty much all of that are things that we've already been discussing, Delaney, so I'm for one, am pretty excited to hear the discussions that um, our representatives might be having and then kind of maybe see what the public is also thinking about the farm bill and policy and all that good stuff. So I'm pretty excited. It's crazy to think we're already talking about our next farm bill, but I suppose when does that one come out? 2022? Is that right, Ashton? 2023. 2023. Okay, thank you. I couldn't remember off the top of my head there. 
Uh, so yeah, it's going to be crazy that we start to talk about that discussion too. But I guess we're going to see that start to happen sooner rather than later. That's for sure. Uh, Ashton, I think I have just one other quick piece of news here I wanted to mention. Looking at export sales again, this time let's talk pork export sales because we're starting to see here some data that Chinese pork imports are starting to slow down a little bit, which would be probably an indicator that China is starting to rebuild their hog herd and or getting their domestic stockpile built back up here. Because of course, you know, we've watched basically since 2018, they've started to cull pretty drastically. We saw in 2020 start to ramp things back up there for production. But nonetheless, the first half of this year, we've not seen a lot of increase as far as Chinese pork shipments go. Volumes of total about 2.8 million tons, just 4% above last year. And in quarter two alone, volumes were actually lower than 2020. So we are still seeing demand. We're just potentially seeing that start to slow down here, which again would be an indicator that uh, perhaps China is maybe a little more truthful in what they've been saying lately as far as rebuilding hog herd goes. So I don't think we're going to see that demand stop by any means, but uh, we're definitely starting to see that slow down a little bit according to some of the latest data. Well, Delaney, how about we go ahead and talk about the latest market numbers? I'm ready to talk about that if you are. I certainly am, Ashton. I certainly am. Looking at today's prices, we again saw some mixed trade in the grain markets. However, today, corn was higher and sweetings trended lower. September corn today up three and a half cents to close at 561 and three quarters. The Dece up a penny and a half to close at 565 even. In the soybean pit, the September contract closing the day out at 1358 and a quarter, down 10 and three quarters cents on the day. November shedding eight and a quarter cents to close at 1353 and a quarter. Now, hopping over into the wheat pit today, we saw strength in the Chicago contract as the September contract closed two and three quarters cents higher to end at 737 and a quarter. The Dece up two and three quarters cents to close at 751 and a quarter. In the livestock markets, we saw strength across the protein complex after yesterday's sell off with the August, excuse me, with the October live cattle contract up 92 and a half cents to close at 129.05. The Dece up, oh, excuse me, up 75 cents to close at 134.57 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits today, the September contract adding $2.42.5 to close at 163.35. The October up $1.55 to close the day out at 165.82 and a half. We've really been seeing some sideways trading there in that contract. Hopping over now to look at the lean hog market, the October contract adding $1.20 today to close at 89.10. The Dece up $1.05 to end the day at 82.12 and a half. And wrapping things up with the class three dairy milk futures, the September contract today shedding 13 cents to close at 17.18. The October down a penny to close at 17.19. Ashton, without further ado, fill us in on who we're talking to for today's interview. Well, today, I believe, is our fourth installment of our Ag Labor mini-series, and we're going to be talking to Shay Myers. Well, for today's show, we're going to be talking to Shay Myers, who is the CEO of Owyhee 
produce. And we're going to, of course, be talking about ag labor because that's part of our mini series here. But before we dive into that, Shay, I just want to thank you for coming on today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Shay, tell us a little bit more about what you do. On social media, you are a self-proclaimed agripreneur. Excuse me, got a little tongue twisted there. So tell us a little bit more about you and your background. Yeah, so I'm a really a third-generation farm kid um, who uh, didn't know that he wanted to go back to the farm. Uh, it, to me, it's about legacy, and that's why I ended up back in our farming operation today. That entails um, about 4,000 acres of row crops, um, principally um, vegetable crops, anything from asparagus to watermelon. Uh, we are a, you know, there's currently three generations working side by side. Um, I work still on a daily basis with my grandmother. I work with uh, my mom and an uncle and several cousins and even a cousin-in-law. So it's about uh, eight different families that are part of our operation. And uh, we pride ourselves on being a vertically integrated farm. We like to follow the value chain with uh, our crop as far along the way as we can uh, with the idea. It doesn't always work out that way with the idea and hope that we capture as much of the, you know, the value and the income as we can. So Shay, I mentioned there that you spoke to the Senate Judiciary Committee, gave your testimony there back in July. It's been a couple of weeks now, but you know, I want to talk a little bit about what that experience was like to you, because from what it sounds like working on the farm is, you know, something near and dear to your heart. And I imagine that these farm workers and employees are as well. And, you know, from what you post on social media, I assume that this was a, a big moment for you. What was that experience really like? Yeah, it was a big moment in a lot of ways. I think the need for labor uh, reform um, or a path to citizenship for so many of our farm workers is so overdue. And, and I think regardless of the side of the aisle that you're on, a lot of people can see that. But there's been political restraints and problems that have prevented that from happening to, regardless of the political party, frankly. Um, the Republicans have had opportunities to um, passed the bill and pushed for it and been turned down by the Democrats. And the opposite has also happened multiple times over the last 30, well, 25 plus years. Um, for me, it's, it's, I grew up in a very, very unique setting, at least unique to many people in the United States. I think a lot of those of us that are living in agricultural communities are, are accustomed to uh, living in multicultural uh, settings. You know, a lot of people think that uh, our small towns are very homogenous and it's just white America. And it's, I grew up in a, a graduating class that was, you know, just slightly less than 50% Hispanic. Uh, so I, I grew up uh, with that appreciation and love for those people and understanding of the work that they're doing and the, the desire that they have to improve their lives. So being in Washington gave me an opportunity to speak for so many people that in a lot of ways are voiceless. Uh, and that's on the workers front. It also gave me an opportunity to speak as, uh, as a farmer, you know, someone in agriculture who is like so many exhausted and overwhelmed by not only the work, but the lack of workers and what we've done over the last, you know, seven or eight years, especially over the last 18 months is work 15 or 20% more hours. And, you know, all the while, bringing in 20 to 25% less income. Uh, and so I, I was very fortunate to be able to voice 
my opinion and point of view as a farmer and also the perspective that I had on Latino workers and the injustice that's been served to them for so long. Shay, I want to talk about some of those points. What were some key aspects of your testimony that you wanted to make clear to the Senate Judiciary Committee? And, you know, from a farmer standpoint, I want to, I want to know just a little bit more about that on, on things that you wanted to make clear. Yeah, I mean, I first of all, I wanted to make clear that the, the folks that are here working in the fields, especially those that have been here for a decade or more, really have come with these same aspirations that uh, uh, a European ancestor of yours or mine came with. They, they came from overseas to create a better life here in the United States, a better life, not, and not even so much for themselves, but especially for their future. Right, we all live better lives here because of the sacrifices and efforts and the challenges that the previous generations went through. And these folks are no different than that. The difference is, is they didn't cross an ocean; they walked across the border. And I wanted to make sure that everyone understood that if we were in a similar similar situation, and I'll speak for myself personally, if I was in a situation where I couldn't feed, clothe, or put a roof over the head of my, my children and my family. I would do whatever it took to take care of them. And that's exactly what we've done. We've had open border policies largely, uh, more open and more closed at certain timeframes, depending on the administration and depending on the politics. But essentially the border, you know, uh, the the R's or the D's can say they've done more or less to, to close it or to open it. But the fact is millions of people crossed that border, which tells us that it was relatively open for a very long period of time, or there wouldn't be over 10 million people here. And they crossed with the same intent and desire for the most part as, you know, anyone that crossed an ocean to get to the United States. And I wanted to make sure that that was understood by everyone, left, right, center, Republican, Democrat, Latino, you know, everyone. Um, And the other piece is those that have come here have paid their dues. I wanted to make sure that they understood that the, the folks that are here work hard and contribute and do things on our farms and operations that we we could not get done without them. And therefore they need uh, some sort of path to citizenship. And then my third point really is how short on labor we really are. We're losing crops. We're not harvesting everything that we should as efficiently or effectively as we could because we don't have enough people. So we're so short on on labor that there's a potential of actually wasting food, yet we can't fix the policy um, to allow for an easier crossing for agricultural visas, for H-2A visas. Um, The the bureaucratic process is way more complicated than it needs to be. And why? For those that are trying to come here and contribute and to make a difference for them and for our economy, actually. Jay, I want to go a little personal here because you you mentioned, of course, the the shortage of labor that we're seeing in agriculture right now, and it's it's across the board. You know, it's not just in the field, but it's in the trucks, it's it's in the processing facilities. So, for you personally, how has this labor shortage really impacted your operation? Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest example to go to, and and one that obviously pulled at heartstrings and helps people to understand 
our current circumstances is, um, you know, what ended up going viral um, on TikTok and CBS and some of those things, which was an asparagus crop that we essentially completely lost because we couldn't find domestic laborers um, when our H2A workers were delayed. So there was a delay at the border. Um, we had a date of need of mid-March. Those workers arrived um, three months after that. Um, so we knew in advance because of, you know, the, the paperwork and communication that those folks were going to make it. We started to look domestically as far away as California, Washington, Arizona, uh, because we knew we didn't have the work pool or the labor pool in our area, which is why we bring H2A workers in the first place. Um, and at the end of the day, it didn't matter. We looked and looked um, and couldn't find folks willing to come. And we, we lost 10 to 12 days worth of harvest. You lose on, on asparagus. We're picking that crop every single day, seven days a week for between ten and twelve weeks. So you lose you lose ten days of harvest, and you've given up your profit for the entire year. And so that's probably the most poignant, significant, uh, real world example of how tight uh, we are on labor and how dangerous and scary it is for us as producers and farmers to rely on the government to do their job efficiently, effectively, and timely so that we can make a profit and have the food to feed the nation. Shay, in a perfect world, what would you hope is the next steps when we're talking about the FWMA or just ag labor reform in general? What do you hope to see here in the near future from our representatives and leaders up in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, um, I don't have high expectations, but what I would hope for at the very least, the low lying fruit, the things that we certainly ought to be able to agree on, regardless of, of you know where we are in the political spectrum. H2A reform, improving the process, expediting um, the, the electronically expediting the application process uh, is, is an easy one that, that could quickly be improved upon and reduce the risk to our food supply and to our farmers. That's an easy one. The, the next one, I think that's a significant component to that is changing the H2A regulations right now. And, and I think of dairy when I speak to this. But we have the same problems in our, our packing facilities now um, in, in that we, we're not, it's not just seasonal. We're talking about ag labor, but there's this funny uh, connection or, or requirement on an H-2A visa that those workers only come for eight to nine months maximum per year. It has to be seasonal work. Well, it's not, I, I, I think you would agree that it's not just field workers where we're lacking labor. It's dairies. Uh, meat packing facilities, uh, fresh produce packing facilities. Uh, I mean, in every part of the economy. And so it has they, 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 the low lying fruit there that everyone should be able to agree on is, okay, the visa program should not be limited to seasonality. Um, I don't know whether they'll get that done. You know, that's, that's the second one that I feel like is really easy. Um, the third piece of that bill um, is DACA, like the, the dream actor or the, the, the dreamers that are those that came here or were brought by their parents at three, four, five, six years old that have gone to high school, that speak English as their first language, that in a lot of cases have gone to college and they're, they're in limbo. They're not legal to do anything and it's not their fault. So that seems like another piece of the bill that should be very simple to address. I mean, in, in, 
others might disagree, but you know, those three things, everything else after that, I can see where the complication comes in. Um, you know, a, a path to citizenship, people can argue for or against, they're going to have their arguments, but uh, H2A reform uh, and approval, improvement in the process, the, again, the, the ability for uh, H2A workers to be here for more than eight months at a time, and then a path, you know, to truly legitimize the, the dreamers that are here and part of our, our country and part of um, our economy and people who want to make a difference and contribute. Shay, it's been wonderful to talk to you. And I wish we had a little bit more time to really deep dive into these conversations. But we're going to keep having conversations like this on the Ag News Daily Podcast. And this is something that you share quite frequently on your social media. So where can our audience find out more from you and follow along as you take us on some quite funny, but also interesting and informative journeys on the farm? Yeah, certainly. I get a little bit raw and uh, straightforward on all of my video content. Um, you can find me uh, on TikTok at Shea Farm Kid. You can find me on Instagram uh, under the same handle, Shea Farm Kid. And then uh, I do quite a bit of content on LinkedIn as well. And that's just Shea Myers. Awesome. Well, Shay, thank you once more for coming on. And thank you also for, of course, providing food for you know our nation and also being an advocate for those who might not be able to do so for themselves. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be a part of uh, agriculture and to have been on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks again there to Shay for coming on and chatting with us, talking about his involvement in the Senate Judiciary Committees because he went and gave a testimony there. So you can find that online. And while you're at it, you can follow Shay, at least on TikTok. I enjoy some of his TikToks at Shay Farm Kid. And while you're at it, although we're not on TikTok, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. So be sure to follow us there as well. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.